Outside, should I run and hide? How do I take my company worldwide? Do you love the law? Did you watch Hee Haw? What's the weirdest thing that you ever saw? What's it like in court? Favorite sport? Can you help with my book report? Is my hair too long? Am I right or wrong? And do you mind if I sing along to anything? Ask Alan anything in the world. Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, this episode of Ask Alan, the podcast. I'm Alan Crone, the CEO of the Crone Law Firm, and uh, I've got a great uh, guest today. This is going to be a very fascinating uh, show, I have no doubt. Uh, the district attorney for the 30th Judicial District of Tennessee at Shelby County, uh, General uh, Amy Wyrick. Uh, General, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's good to see you, and it's great to be on the show. Well, it's, it's great to have you, and uh, one of the things that we try to do on this show is uh, spotlight people that uh, you, you don't always get to hear from in, in detail, and whereas you're, you're in the news a lot, but it's, uh, it's usually responding to or being proactive about a particular situation, not just about your, your job in general. So I thought people would, might be interested in hearing about what it's like to be the district attorney. Well, great. I love any opportunity to talk about what your district attorney's office has been up to and what we're busy at. Well, I, I trust that you're more successful than my favorite district attorney, which is Hamilton Berger. Uh, <laughs> in the, the, I always felt so sorry for him. Um, yeah, because, we're a little more successful. Yeah, yeah, he was the DA, yet he was trying all these cases and losing them all. And I always wondered how he got reelected. Well, he must have been a really likable guy, but yes. And, and in the rural parts of the state, the DA does go to court and try all the murder cases and things like that. But our Tennessee DAs have a pretty, have a much better success rate. Yes. Yes. Well, that, I'm glad of that. Uh, <laughs> yes. You know, you think of all the murderers wandering around uh, Los Angeles County because uh, he couldn't put them away or didn't know right. how to arrest the, the right one. Anyway, <laughs> that, I guess that's for the LA police department to worry about. Um, well, uh, how long have you been the, the district attorney? I have been the district attorney for 10 years. I was appointed by Governor Haslam shortly after he took office as governor in January of 2011. I've been with the office since you and I graduated from law school. I've been here since 1991. So I started out down in general sessions and worked my way up to criminal court. And then I served for just a little bit as then District Attorney General Bill Gibbons' right hand. I was the Deputy District Attorney for a little bit. And then when he became the Commissioner of Safety, Governor Haslam appointed me to fill that vacancy. Now, man, it, it, it's hard to believe that it's been 10 years, 2011. Yes. It, seems, uh, it just seems like yesterday that uh, that, that happened. Um, well, let me, let me kind of go back a little bit farther in time uh, you're you're graduating, as you pointed out. Uh, you and I were in law school together, along with with our with our spouse. With our spouses, that's right. That's uh, right. Yours, Chuck, and mine, Allison. We all were in law school together and uh, got out uh, alive, which uh, which is good. Uh, was that something? Was was being a prosecutor a motivation to go to law school? How did you How did you uh, decide to to make your career about uh, protecting uh, public safety? 
the the career of a prosecutor always intrigued me and then i think getting to law school and realizing that i loved uh the moot court and the mock trial opportunities that were afforded us at the university of memphis i really loved that i loved doing that work um and just fell in love with it so it, that to me just kind of said all right maybe this is the right path i actually interned in law school for some criminal defense attorneys and that was a great experience because it gives you that view of the other side of things and was fortunate enough to be hired by then general john parati and started here in 1991. and you started in sessions started in sessions in judge horace parati's courtroom i don't know if you remember judge horace parati but served there for a little bit of time i served with judge Pugh. Uh, in her courtroom. Yes. So I was down in general sessions for about two years and then asked to come up to criminal court and start handling jury cases. And so did that back in back in the day when we we tried a lot of cases and uh, it was not unusual for your division leader to hand you a file on a Monday morning and say, go pick a jury this afternoon on this case. And that's how we got how we got our experience. Right, right. And and uh... Uh, these days, it probably is one of the few places uh, young lawyers can go to actually try cases. It, it, well, and knock on wood, we're finally back in the business of trials here. You know, COVID, of course, impacted that greatly. And up until last week, we had not had a jury trial since before COVID. Um, so we are in trial this week. We've got a couple off the ground. But yes, it is a great opportunity for young lawyers uh, and those that have got a long career behind them to get trial experience. And that's really what um, I told somebody that during the pandemic, it was almost like being the boss of a bunch of racehorses that really just wanted to get in the ring and race. And they were unable to do so because we weren't trying any cases. Well, what, uh, what is the, 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 whatever you want to call it, the delay or the break or whatever, this interruption in jury trials that's got to be uh, wreaking havoc on your office's operations. Uh, how, how, what's your plan to deal with that backlog? Well, and it's really much of it is up to the judges. In turn, you know, not all the judges are back to trial. Some of them are going to wait, uh, I think, until August just to kind of see how things go. So it's really up to the judges to say, yes, I'm ready to get back to trial. And these are the trials that we're going to handle. My position has been from the beginning that we should be trying those cases that are the most serious and that have been in custody the longest, those individuals. Um, and we're doing the best we can with that, given all of the other many factors that go into a case being ready for trial. As you well know, it makes it takes not only the prosecution being ready and the judge being ready, but the defense counsel has got to be ready. All the witnesses have got to be ready. And we've got to have members of the community ready, willing, and able to step up, come down here, raise their right hand, and to commit to serving on jury duty. So um, a lot of different factors go into it. It's hard to gauge exactly what our backlog is because during the pandemic, many of the judges just stopped setting cases for trial and we're just showing them for report setting. So it's really hard to get an, get an accounting of it, but we're, we're coming out of it and we're gonna chip away at it one trial at a time. Were there um, resolutions by, by plea that did, did you see an increase in that or it was it about the same? What was your experience there? Well, probably less because we weren't handling out of custody cases. So the only cases that we handled 
during the pandemic were those individuals um, that were in custody and then slowly incrementally started handling out of custody on bond matter matter. So a um, little bit hard to compare year to year. You know, I think forever in the history books, this past year will just have a big asterisk by its name and a big old footnote at the bottom of the page. Um, but certainly what having the ability to try a case is serves two purposes. First, if that case needs to go to trial and the defendant wants to con exercise his constitutional right to a trial, we can we can do that. The other piece of that is oftentimes when an offender learns that the case is headed to trial and the jury's outside and they're ready to come in, all of a sudden they want to change their plea. They want to change their plea from not guilty to guilty and take advantage of the offer of settlement that our office was offering. And that's a good thing. That keeps the victim from having to take the stand and relive uh, what in, in many cases is a life-changing, harrowing experience. Uh, and it, it provides some finality to that case for the victim, for the witness, and for the system. I know they're foremost in your mind, but a lot of people who aren't in your business forget about the victims. And, you know, I, I don't want to diminish uh, the experience of a defendant waiting for trial in jail uh, because of COVID, but there's, there's also a, a cost uh, to the victims for having to, to wait this long, isn't there? There is. And, you know, even before COVID, it was a frustrating delay. I try to meet with every family of every homicide case. And that's always one of their first questions is how long is it going to take before we get to court and have a trial? Uh, before COVID, we would tell them, prepare yourself for two years, maybe three years. It just depends on the complexity of the case, the courtroom that the case is assigned to, and that judge's docket, uh, a lot of factors that are beyond our control. So even before the pandemic, we had issues of being able to give victims swift and certain conclusion, which is also important for the offenders. Um, you know, moving cases through the system in an efficient manner, we should be doing that for everybody involved in the case. Um, but certainly during the pandemic in those early days and weeks, when we look back on all of the activity around this office, when the courts literally shut down, we had victim witness coordinators on the phone around the clock calling victims and witnesses and saying, don't come down here. We're not sure what the next days and weeks hold, but your case is on hold until further notice. And yes, that is very frustrating and, and understandably so to victims and their families. What, what was your first jury trial? Do you remember? I do remember my first jury trial. It was a criminal attempt sexual battery. I tried it with another ADA, a senior ADA in the courtroom that I was assigned to. And then my first solo jury trial was a DUI case. All right. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, you will remember Judge uh, Daly. Of course. Uh, uh, Judge Daly uh, was my, uh, may have been your uh, trial advocacy teacher and uh, in law school. And so when I graduated, uh, I don't know how he knew where I was, but he called me and he said, uh, I want to appoint you to some criminal cases. You did such a great <laughs> job. And I didn't really think I had much of a choice. When a judge yeah, calls you and asks you. Not when a judge calls. Yeah, yeah, when a judge calls and asks you to do something, I learned very early. Uh, they may be very polite, but uh, you don't really have a chance to turn it down. So I said, okay, fine, judge, sign me up. Well, the problem was I didn't have a whole lot of adult supervision at that time. <laughs> and 
I went down and I knew criminal law. I knew that I was in over my head when my client um, told me what the best deal was going to be. <laughs> in pretty well, technical terms. I hope you listened to him. Oh, I, I absolutely did. And uh, I went and I asked the, the assistant uh, district attorney for the deal that my client dictated to me. Um, he, uh, he, he kind of equivocated and I said, look, I know this is the deal. I didn't tell him how I knew it was the deal, but I said, I know it's the deal. He says, okay, you're right. And he gave That's it to great. me. And uh, I went back and, and gave it to the, he, and the, the, my client said, well, you did a great job. And I, <laughs> I said, I'm not sure you needed me. But anyways, right. so I, I went and told uh, Judge Daly, I said, look, uh, I'm afraid the next, per, the next uh, client I get may not be as well informed as this guy, and I don't want to do anybody dirty. So that was my last foray into criminal court. But at least you recognized your strengths and weaknesses. Well, I yeah. sure did. You know, that yeah, everybody should, um, you know, uh, there's an old saying, I don't know who say it, but every, every lawyer should do one criminal matter, one car accident, and one divorce, no matter what you do. That's so, good advice. Yep. So I've got, I've got all three of those under my belt and I don't do any of them now. <laughs> um, so uh, what was it like in the, in the, the nineties uh, in the district attorney's office under, under uh, general Parati? Um, I, I, you know, he was a, he's a legend uh, in the Memphis legal community, at least was to me, you know, coming sure. up. What was it like to work in that particular office? It was a, a totally different office. You know, it was smaller, um, certainly far less women prosecutors in the office. Um, the caseloads, the, the workload of a prosecutor back in the 90s was not what it is today. Um, we talk about 1996 and some of those years of having very, very high crime rates and so those are still kind of the benchmark years that we measure crime rates against. Um, but the workload and what was expected of a prosecutor was completely different than what it is today. We really were reactive. We waited for the Memphis Police Department, the Shelby County Sheriff's Office to make an arrest and to bring us a case. And then we triaged those cases every morning in general sessions deciding uh, what the evidence is, what the law says, what the offer should be. Somewhere toward the late 1990s, early 2000s, our job, our role, our mission as prosecutors started to expand. And we started to look more as a, I guess, as a collective profession into what could we be doing to prevent and to intervene? What could, if anything, DA's offices here and across the country do to try to keep people from ever coming into the system or if they get into the system, how do we get them out and make sure they don't come back? And that's really when you started to see the birth of specialty courts. You know, we have one of the oldest drug courts in the state here presided over by Judge Dwyer. Uh, and, and drug court was born from this idea that sure, Prosecutors can continue to send people out to the penal farm who break into cars to feed their drug habit. But guess what? When they get out of the penal farm and they're all gonna get out, they're just gonna go back to breaking into cars to feed their drug habit. So what if we worked on addressing their drug addiction? What would that do to their life, their future? And what would that look like from a public safety standpoint? And now we have 
not only the old drug court, but we've got a mental health court. We have a veterans court. Uh, we have a class that we send everybody that's charged with prostitution to. And if they take part of this class, we dismiss their charges and expunge them from their record. Um, and we do a lot more in the community in terms of raising awareness, working with all level of ages of citizens, uh, just to, again, keep them from ever coming into the system. And if they do come into the system, what can we do to make sure they never come back? I, you know, I run into people, I won't say all the time, but I, I'd say several times a year, I'll run into somebody who is a graduate of the, of the drug court in particular. Yep. And they, they do, they talk about how it, it turned their life around and it gave them a kind of a pause and an opportunity to, to choose a different path. And it's, um, you know, uh, God only knows how many people were, were rescued that way, but it certainly is a, a great feature we have here in, in Shelby County. It is, and it's something I'm very proud of and was very proud to help get the mental health court off the ground and help get the veterans court off the ground. You know, people um, sometimes overlook the fact that we can't have those courts without the prosecutors saying yes, that we want to be a part of this because there are cases and we're the ones who make those decisions on how they should best be handled. But with all of the cases that come through the system here every day, every month, every year, all any prosecutor wants to see happen is to come up with a resolution that keeps that offender from ever coming back in the system. Sometimes the only resolution that we are left with because of what that offender has done and what their criminal history is, the only resolution we can land on and be true to our responsibility to the public is incarceration, is, is seeking a prison sentence so they cannot harm anyone for a long time. But that's really kind of the, the tip of the iceberg for the larger chunk of the iceberg under the water, uh, those are the cases where the offenders are gonna be out in the community doing their sentence. And it's our responsibility um, as much as, as it is theirs to come up with a resolution that keeps them from reoffending. Um, and that looks like probation. That looks like these specialty courts that we've talked about, that looks like the new restorative justice program that we kicked off during the pandemic called community justice. Um, all fashion and form of resolutions, dispositions that are really just trying to accomplish that very simple thing. And that is keeping that individual from coming back. Now Yalva started a program that's similar to um, community policing where you've got uh, prosecutors in the community. Uh, tell me about that. I do. I do. A couple years ago, we started community prosecution and I took three of our more senior experienced prosecutors and assigned them to a Memphis Police Department precinct. We picked Tillman, we picked Mount Moriah, and we picked Old Allen for a variety of reasons. And we only picked three because that was all the resources we had. Um, and so we, they have a, an office out in the precinct. Their job is to go to those precincts every day, not only to work side by side with law enforcement, which is important to make sure that the cases that they're sending to the DA's office for prosecution are the right cases, right? Are the strongest cases that they can be, that we've got the evidence that we need to go to court and, and do our job. If it's a case that doesn't need to result in an arrest, 
then you've got a prosecutor there to say, you know what, let's see if maybe we can work this out in another way and save this 18 year old who's never been in trouble before from having this felony charge on their record. Uh, and the other important partner that they work with is the public. Uh, a big part of what they do every day is interact with business owners, school principals, those retired individuals that live on every street that can tell you who's supposed to be on that street and who's not supposed to be on that street. But building that relationship with the community so that it pays dividends back here in the criminal justice system. Um, we held a press conference yesterday talking about a new witness relocation program that uh, Greater Amani and we hope other churches will step up and participate in. And I made the comment yesterday that I make all the time, we can't do what we do as prosecutors unless and until someone in the community is willing to step up, make that phone call to the police when they see the crime occurring and answer that call when we ask them to come down and testify. Um, and so having those prosecutors in the community, getting to know the community helps increase that trust and helps the community see through a clearer lens how important they are to the criminal justice system. I know that um, you talked a, a few minutes ago about uh, your first experience where your leader might, uh, your division leader might hand you a file and say, go try this. Um, because you were just, you had more than you could say grace over it. Any, is it still that way or? No, we, we've, come a long, we've come a long way in terms of training um, and a whole host of other ways the office is set up. We, I guess two years ago, we completely reorganized the office to a vertical model. So every case that comes in the system now is handled by the same team of prosecutors from the moment it first lands in court in general sessions until it is over in criminal court. And that was not the system for the whole 28 years that I worked here before. Right. We had vertical teams that handled certain types of crime, domestic violence, gang, uh, our drug unit, um, ga uh, special victims unit that handles rape and child abuse and those types of cases. So we had special teams of prosecutors who handled those specialty cases. But for the majority of the other cases that came through the system, uh, it could have been uh, several prosecutors in general sessions that worked on the case for a while. And then if the case got held to the action of the grand jury and indicted, it was a different set of prosecutors that would handle that case in criminal court. We abolished that system. It took a lot of work, a lot of planning. And first and foremost, it took the agreement of and the cooperation of every judge, every general sessions judge, every criminal court judge had to give us the, the blessing to do this. And so now every general sessions judge and criminal court judge is partnered. So if a case lands in general sessions seven tomorrow, we know if it is indicted, it is going to go to criminal court division one. And that same team is gonna handle it. That's important for those things that we talked about earlier. And that is getting cases through the system more efficiently, which is important for the offender. It's important for the victim and it's important for all of us. I, I would imagine that would greatly improve preparation um, because you're, you've got that institutional knowledge of the case. Um, yep. Uh, yeah, so I, I didn't realize y'all, like I say, I don't do a lot of criminal law. So uh, I think that's a great innovation. 
it's it's been really I, I don't know that we would have survived the pandemic as strong and as well as we did as an office if we hadn't done that the year before um, but what it's also done from a training standpoint is now you have brand new ADAs who've just been hired last month who are literally working side by side with more experienced prosecutors day in and day out and we've got everyone's offices situated so that teams are together so team one takes up a corner of the office team two takes up another corner of the office and it the team includes more than just the prosecutors it's the victim witness coordinator it's their investigator it's their support staff they're all a vital vital partner in the functioning of that team and the administration of justice well that sounds great um you know i think that's one malady that our uh, profession uh, in other parts of the profession really suffer from is a lack of uh, uh, mentorship, a lack of apprenticeship. Um, and I know I wouldn't, you know, I hopefully I'm a successful lawyer. I hope I wouldn't be as successful if I hadn't had good mentors coming up. And so I, I'm glad to hear that because that just makes you a better lawyer when you've got someone who knows what they're doing to, to bounce things off of. It definitely does. I know there are some states where the bar requires the, that kind of partnership between experienced attorneys and newly sworn in attorneys, but you're exactly right. It's those official and unofficial mentorships uh, that really help form us. Well, let me, let me change the, the subject dramatically here, but, um, <laughs> and that is technology. When you and I first started practicing law, uh, you get a bunch of documents and they'd be in a box and you could look at them and put your hand on them. Now I get documents and they're, you know, they're all electronic and so forth. You've got all kinds of video now that you didn't have before. Yes. How has technology affected both positively and negatively your ability to do your job in your office? It has, it has definitely greatly impacted us. Uh, the, the biggest example recently has been the body-worn cameras and the in-car cameras. Um, when I first learned several years ago that the police department was going to put body cameras on all 2,000 officers, um, I was a little shocked, first of all, to learn that that was even being discussed, and second of all, to learn that the DA's office had not been folded in to that. Um, was able to reach out to those people that I needed to reach out to and pump the brakes on that a little bit and make people understand that what is captured on that body-worn camera is evidence. It is evidence. And we have a duty and a responsibility to collect and preserve and maintain that evidence, just like we do the murder weapon, just like we do a defendant's confession, just like we do a victim's photo spread identification. Um, and so fast forward now, every Memphis police officer is wearing a body camera, but thankfully the department rolled it out incrementally and allowed me the opportunity and the time to get busy, uh, drop everything else that was on the desk and focus on getting the resources in this office to handle that evidence. Um, and we received funding from the county commission to hire a group that we call our digital evidence analysts. And they literally sit in a room all day, every day, gathering the body-worn camera footage, making sure that it is appropriately preserved and categorized um, and then making sure that it is connected to the case 
that it belongs with so that we can provide it to the defense counsel so that we can have it in the event that we need to show it to a jury. Um, and it's just, it's just part of the file, but the time that it takes to do all of those things is astonishing. And it, it's become very clear in, uh, particularly with our officer involved shooting cases that we review and render opinions on every second of those and every second of every uh, body worn camera footage is gone over painstakingly to make sure that before we share it, we're not sharing information that we are prohibited by law from sharing. Like if you were to have recited your social security number to an officer, that's gotta be redacted. That's gotta be cut out. Those types of things. It takes a lot of time, takes a lot of energy takes a lot of people and patience. And so we've got, we've got what we need. We could always use more people to share the burden, but body-worn cameras have changed dramatically. How they've changed is not only just from a resource standpoint, but from both an inculpatory and exculpatory standpoint. So sometimes a defendant like your client may tell the lawyer one thing uh, this is how it went down. This is how it happened. But when you watch the body worn camera footage, that's not exactly, not exactly how it went down. And the client may have a different memory of uh, walking out of that store with the TV under their hands that's captured on the footage. But it's also, it can help uh, get people out of trouble, right? It can help support what someone is telling us, what a witness is telling us that perhaps uh, things didn't happen the way uh, other witnesses are relaying it to us. So they serve a great value, no doubt about it. Um, I think there's great value as well in the public seeing what our law enforcement does day in and day out that's above and beyond the call of duty. The times that they go above and beyond what is asked of them as officers to help someone, uh, to be incredibly patient in incredibly stressful situations. Um, so it just, it, it gives you a view of what's happening, but I think it's important to remember that it's kind of like looking at something through a straw and it's not the only image of the facts. We've got to look at everything else. And, and the production uh, value uh, isn't nearly what a lot of people expect. You know, a lot of people expect to watch a, CS, right. a CSI episode and, and that's just not what you get from a, a camera that's mounted on, on someone's chest and as one perspective. That's exactly right. Yes, the, the technology and, you know, we, we have to catch up with the technology. I mean, th this literally got dumped on us and, and dumped on DA's offices across the country that we're still struggling with. You know, when you talk about electronic discovery and things like that, we, we do electronic discovery, but we still file paper in the clerk's office. We still rely very much on paper. Um, to keep our files, to write on files in court. And sometimes there's no substitute for that. It's a whole lot faster to write on a file than to have seven ADAs in court all trying to get to the same computer screen yeah. to make a note of something. Um, so we had a lot of catching up to do with technology before the pandemic and that made it, uh, that really pushed it to the forefront. Yeah, and you know, for, for us, we see more video than you would think in civil practice. But for us, it's the emails and the documents, and there's just so much more evidence now. Yeah. And our clients control more evidence than they uh, they used to because 
everybody's everybody's phone has all kinds of evidence on it um, that people don't think about. And, um, and so we, we've, we're having to get into that business of really coaching uh, our clients before they have a problem that, hey, you can't get rid of your phone. You can't get rid of your laptop because there's evidence on it. And it's the same thing. Everybody thinks about body-worn cameras. I don't say everybody, but the, the, the thought was, well, you want it there when, when something bad happens between sure. a citizen and a police officer so you can see it. But so much more happens. Yep. Um, and I don't think the politicians really thought about that uh, when body-worn cameras became a thing because they were really trying to address a very narrow part of the problem. Right. I mean, it's in, in many cases, and I've heard many of our ADAs say this, in, in preparation for trial, you're literally going back and experiencing everything that that officer experienced because to get ready for trial, you got to watch it. And it may be that that camera was on at a crime scene for eight hours. Well, you got to sit there and watch it. So it's really like these ADAs being there mm -hmm. on the scene, devoting the same amount of time to, to the situation that the officer did that responded. You know, I do, I do a bunch of employment law and um, in sexual harassment cases, there's always a, a, a recording, either an audio recording or video recording um, uh, that, that people do. And I always say, you know, sometimes your recollection of what happened is much better for you than what what's on that camera or what's yep. on that recording. So, yep. uh, you know, it, it, the camera doesn't lie. That's for sure. That's for sure. Uh, yeah. But, uh, well, but okay. It so always, it doesn't always tell the full picture either. You it know doesn't I mean? always tell the full picture. Right. It's not yep. infallible. Uh, as okay. any NFL referee will tell you, <laughs> you know, it just, sometimes it creates more issues, uh, yep. than it solves, but, um, and, you know, I think that's part of our profession just across the board is, um, you know, you've got a profession that essentially was molded in, if not the 19th century, then maybe even uh, before that. Right. And um, it's hard to, it's always, it, it's hard to adapt the new uh, digital uh, technology to what we did. No doubt about it. But y'all, but I will say when I was in the mayor's office, you, you your office was a, was a great partner in, um, putting all that together. And, um, uh, you know, it was hard, but, but it was, we hard. did it. Yep, yeah, that's right. That's right. And thankfully, as I said, we got the funding from the County commission to hire those people. Um, we could always use more, but we're thankful to have what we have. Well, what's the, what do you think the future holds for, uh, law enforcement in Memphis and for the Shelby County district attorney's office? That's a great question. I'm very excited about Chief Davis. Um, was at her swearing in on Friday, had an opportunity to be with her Monday at a press conference. Very excited about her uh, vision and just what she stands for and um, how she's carried herself in the cities that she has worked before. So I think um, fresh eyes and a fresh perspective will be a good thing. I think, you know, we've learned a lot, obviously, as everyone has through the pandemic, um, we've seen a disturbing increase in violent crime, disturbing increase in homicides and aggravated assaults. Um, and I think that's you know, perhaps what happens when you rush to or focus your attentions on just getting everybody out of jail and pulling police into a million different directions. They are, as we know, understaffed, under-resourced. I think there's great conversations going on, not only here, but across the country about 
um, changing, improving, perhaps whatever word you want to use, how police go about their job. Um, is there room for perhaps, you know, psychiatrists, social workers to accompany police um, on certain types of calls to diffuse a situation that might otherwise result in an arrest that could perhaps be handled in a better way, in a different way. Um, it, it's what motivated us to start our restorative justice program. So we really um, hope to expand that and grow that more. That takes certain offenses. And if the offender agrees and the victim agrees, we let a panel of citizens decide what the sentence should be. Um, and the sentence has to be a kind of a, a, an improvement plan for the offender. Here are the things he or she is going to do. It has to include honoring that victim and making that victim whole. Um, and then if the offender does those things and the panel is satisfied, I dismiss the charges and we expunge it from their record. But it, it changes the way we respond to certain crimes and it gives the community where that crime occurred an opportunity to make known to that offender the impact their actions have on that community. So I hope to grow that and um, use that type of restorative science uh, in, in other areas. Um, I think we're gonna see hopefully additional, we're going to need to see additional resources to address mental health issues. Um, it, it's an issue everywhere you go and we are under-resourced when it comes to our needs in Shelby County and the, the connection between criminal activity uh, and mental health issues. And then I hope we also continue to see our legislature respond to what is needed. And that is tougher laws for violent criminals, right? And more services, better services, improved services for victims. I just finished my term as president of the Tennessee District Attorney General's Conference and was really proud of our legislative packet that we had as DAs this year. And it was a very small packet, but it was centered on victims. Uh, an example of legislation that we got pushed. Now an offender has to pay restitution first. What typically happened was court costs and fines and fees got paid and the victim got neglected. This law flips that on its head and mandates that restitution to the victim has to be paid first and then you pay your court costs and fines and fees. So things like that, looking at how we can improve and enhance the services not only locally but on a statewide level for, for victims of crime. Well I applaud you for that because again as I said before um, you know there are lots of concerns about recidivism and breaking that cycle and so forth. But at the end of the day, um, particularly with violent crime, there's a victim. Yep. And to forget them and not give them respect, I think is a big mistake. And that's one way that your office and the government and the, the criminal justice system in general can maintain its integrity and maintain its reputation in the community is making sure those victims are taken care of. No doubt. No doubt. I'm, you know, we, we have implemented a lot of reforms, a lot of new policies and procedures and programs in this office since I've been district attorney and I'm all for coming to work tomorrow and doing a better job as DA than I did today. 
but reform has got to mean more than just release. It's got to be victim-centered. It's got to be with an eye toward safety to the community. And for, again, a, a small segment of the caseload that we deal with, they're violent. And they have proven to us time and time again that they will continue to victimize people unless they are incarcerated. Um, we have to be able to remove them from the streets and take away the ability for them to continue to hurt people. Um, but for everybody else, it's, it's a whole host of programs, official and unofficial. Um, one that I haven't mentioned that we've worked really hard on and I'm proud of is focused deterrence. And that is taking repeat violent offenders who are currently on parole or probation and telling them, we know who you are. We've got your name in an alert system. If you pick up any type of crime, I'm gonna get an email, whether it's two o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the afternoon. And my team of prosecutors is gonna to know to give your case special attention because of your history, because of your record. I don't want that to happen. What I'd rather you do is take advantage of these services that we're providing you. And then comes in the room at a, a list, a team of service providers in our community, Hope Works, Lifeline to Success, Memphis Shelby County Office of Reentry, a long list of partners who are there to help and wanna give these offenders an opportunity for a better future. Um, so it's, it's the mixed message of the violence has got to stop, it's gotta stop now, but at the same time, we really wanna help. We really wanna make sure you have the best future possible for yourself and for your family. And if you take advantage of these services, you're more likely to make that happen. Last question. What do, you, what do you think General Parati would think if he shadowed you for a day today? Oh, my goodness. That's going to bring tears to my eyes. Um, I think well, first of all, he'd be very proud of you, I'm oh, sure. Oh, I hope so. I hope he would. Um, I think he would be shocked at the size of the office. I think he would be shocked at the caseload that comes in the doors. Um, and I think he would be so proud of what we do beyond the courtroom. You know, he, you didn't, you didn't have many interactions with the district attorney when I started as a young prosecutor here. Uh, if you got called over to the DA's office, uh, it was usually because you messed something up or because <laughs> one of the cases you were handling had come to his attention. But what I learned quickly from General Prati and the other great men and women that I've been blessed to work with here is the heart that goes along with being a prosecutor, um, that we are not just about locking people up. And that was, he certainly uh, lived by that every day. His focus and the focus of our office has always been justice, doing what is right for the right reasons. Well, that sounds like a great place to leave it. Um, I hope that you continue to uh, leave that office for at least uh, another eight or nine years. I know Me you've too. got, you're Thank gearing you. up for re-election next year and on one of the longest ballots. Yeah. Uh, you, you have the, you have the, uh, the handicap, I guess, of all, every time you're up for re-election, it's on this ballot that's huge because the judges are all up at the same time as you are, but. That's right. Uh, hang in there, uh, keep doing uh, the great job that you're doing. I know I feel safer in Memphis because of, of you, but not just you, your whole office um, are, 
are, are I'm, great. I'm the face and voice, but I got a great team. They're some of the best in the world. Very good. Well, thank you again for thank taking you. the time to be with us today. And uh, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed it, and I mean, why wouldn't you have enjoyed it? This is an awesome podcast today. Not because of me, but because of my guests. Share us on social media. Uh, uh, email us to folks that you think would uh, uh, have interest in it. And uh, as always, please give me some feedback on the topics you'd like to see in the future or ask Alan, if you've got a question, send it to me and I'll try to find the answer for you. Um, uh, you know, we're both, I always say at the end, uh, I'm gonna go get some justice, but uh, uh, this, this time my guest and I both, we're gonna go get some justice. That's Thank right. you all very much.